Section 24 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canin. Youth 1, Part 3. Christophe would probably never have bothered about these questions had he lived alone, but the obligations of social life forced him to bring his thoughts to bear on these puerile and useless problems, which occupy a place out of all proportion in the world. It is impossible not to take them into account, since at every step they are in the way. As if a healthy, generous creature, overflowing with strength and love, had not a thousand more worthy things to do, than to worry as to whether God exists or no. If it were only a question of believing in God, but it is needful to believe in a God, of whatever shape or size and color and race. So far Christophe never gave a thought to the matter. Jesus hardly occupied his thoughts at all. It was not that he did not love him. He loved him when he thought of him, but he never thought of him. Sometimes he reproached himself for it, was angry with himself, could not understand why he did not take more interest in him, and yet he professed, all his family professed, his grandfather was forever reading the Bible, he went regularly to Mass, he served it in a sort of way, for he was an organist, and he set about his task conscientiously and in an exemplary manner. But when he left the church he would have been hard put to it to say what he had been thinking about. He set himself to read the holy books in order to fix his ideas, and he found amusement and even pleasure in them, just as in any beautiful strange books, not essentially different from other books, which no one ever thinks of calling sacred. In truth, if Jesus appealed to him, Beethoven did no less, and at his organ in St. Florian's church, where he accompanied on Sundays, he was more taken up with his organ than with Mass and he was more religious when he played Bach than when he played Mendelssohn. Some of the ritual brought him to a fervor of exaltation, but did he then love God, or was it only the music, as an impudent priest said to him one day in jest, without thinking of the unhappiness which his quip might cause in him? Anybody else would not have paid any attention to it, and would not have changed his mode of living." So many people put up with not knowing what they think. But Christophe was cursed with an awkward need for sincerity, which filled him with scruples at every turn. And when scruples came to him, they possessed him forever. He tortured himself. He thought that he had acted with duplicity. Did he believe or did he not? He had no means, material or intellectual, knowledge and leisure are necessary, of solving the problem by himself and yet it had to be solved, or he was either indifferent or a hypocrite. Now he was incapable of being either one or the other. He tried timidly to sound those about him. They all seemed to be sure of themselves. Christophe burned to know their reasons. He could not discover them. Hardly did he receive a definite answer. They always talked obliquely. Some thought him arrogant, and said that there is no arguing these things, 
that thousands of men cleverer and better than himself had believed without argument, and that he needed only to do as they had done. There were some who were a little hurt, as though it were a personal affront to ask them such a question, and yet they were of all perhaps the least certain of their facts. Others shrugged their shoulders and said with a smile, "'Bah! It can't do any harm!' And their smile said, "'And it is so useful!' Christophe despised them with all his heart. He had tried to lay his uncertainties before a priest, but he was discouraged by the experiment. He could not discuss the matter seriously with him. Though his interlocution was quite pleasant, he made Christophe feel, quite politely, that there was no real equality between them. He seemed to assume in advance that his superiority was beyond dispute, and that the discussion could not exceed the limits which he laid down for it, without a kind of impropriety. It was just a fencing bout, and was quite inoffensive. When Christophe wished to exceed the limits, and to ask questions which the worthy man was pleased not to answer, he stepped back with a patronizing smile, and a few Latin quotations, and a fatherly objurgation to pray, pray that God would enlighten him. Christophe issued from the interview humiliated and wounded by his love of polite superiority. Wrong or right, he would never again for anything in the world have recourse to a priest. He admitted that these men were his superiors in intelligence or by reason of their sacred calling, but in argument there is neither superiority nor inferiority, nor title, nor age, nor name, nothing is of worth but truth, before which all men are equal. So he was glad to find a boy of his own age who believed. He asked no more than belief, and he hoped that Leonard would give him good reason for believing. He made advances to him. Leonard replied with his usual gentleness, but without eagerness. He was never eager about anything. As they could not carry on a long conversation in the house without being interrupted every moment by Amalia or the old man, Christophe proposed that they should go for a walk one evening after dinner. Leonard was too polite to refuse, although he would gladly have got out of it, for his indolent nature disliked walking, talking, and anything that cost him an effort. Christophe had some difficulty in opening up the conversation. After two or three awkward sentences about trivialities, he plunged with a brusqueness that was almost brutal. He asked Leonard if he were really going to be a priest, and if he liked the idea. Leonard was nonplussed and looked at him uneasily, but when he saw that Christophe was not hostily disposed, he was reassured. "'Yes,' he replied. "'How could it be otherwise?' "'Ah,' said Christophe, "'you are very happy.' Leonard was conscious of a shade of envy in Christophe's voice, and was agreeably flattered by it. He altered his manner, became expansive, his face brightened. "'Yes,' he said, "'I am happy.' he beamed. "'What do you do to be so?' asked Christophe. Before replying, Leonard proposed that they should sit down on a quiet seat in the cloisters of St. Martin's. From there they could see a corner of the little square, planted with acacias, and beyond it the town, the country, bathed in the evening mists. The Rhine flowed at the foot of the hill. 
An old deserted cemetery, with graves lost under the rich grass, lay in slumber beside them behind the closed gates. Leonard began to talk. He said, with his eyes shining with contentment, how happy he was to escape from life, to have found a refuge where a man is, and forever will be, in shelter. Christophe, still sore from his wounds, felt passionately the desire for rest and forgetfulness, but it was mingled with regret. He asked with a sigh, And yet, does it cost you nothing to renounce life altogether? Oh, said Leonard quietly, what is there to regret? Isn't life sad and ugly? There are lovely things, too, said Christophe, looking at the beautiful evening. There are some beautiful things, but very few. The few that there are are yet many to me. Oh, well, it is simply a matter of common sense. On the one hand, a little good and much evil. On the other, neither good nor evil on earth, and after infinite happiness, how can one hesitate? Christoph was not very pleased with this sort of arithmetic. So economic a life seemed to him very poor. But he tried to persuade himself that it was wisdom. So, he asked, a little ironically, there is no risk of your being seduced by an hour's pleasure? How foolish, when you know that it is only an hour, and that after it there is all eternity. You are quite certain of eternity? Of course. Christophe questioned him. He was thrilled with hope and desire. Perhaps Leonard would at last give him impregnable reasons for believing. With what a passion he would himself renounce all the world to follow him to God. At first Leonard, proud of his role of apostle, and convinced that Christophe's doubts were only a matter of form, and that they would, of course, give way before his first arguments, relied upon the holy books, the authority of the gospel, the miracles, and traditions. But he began to grow gloomy when, after Christophe had listened for a few minutes, he stopped him, and said that he was answering questions with questions, and that he had not asked him to tell exactly what it was that he was doubting, but to give some means of resolving his doubts. Leonard then had to realize that Christophe was much more ill than he seemed, and that he would only allow himself to be convinced by the light of reason. But he still thought that Christophe was playing the free thinker. It never occurred to him that he might be so sincerely. He was not discouraged, and strong in his recently acquired knowledge, he turned back to his school learning. He unfolded higgledy-piggledy with more authority than order his metaphysical proofs of the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. Christophe, with his mind at stretch and his brow knit in the effort, labored in silence, and made him say it all over again, tried hard to gather the meaning and to take it to himself and to follow the reasoning. Then suddenly he burst out, vowed that Leonard was laughing at him, that it was all tricks, jests of the fine talkers who forged words and then amused themselves with pretending that these words were things. Leonard was nettled, and guaranteed the good faith of his authors. Christophe shrugged his shoulders and said with an oath that they were only humbugs, infernal writers, and he demanded fresh proof. 
Leonard perceived to his horror that Christophe was incurably attainted, and took no more interest in him. He remembered that he had been told not to waste his time in arguing with skeptics, at least when they stubbornly refused to believe. There was the risk of being shaken himself, without profiting the other. It was better to leave the unfortunate fellow to the will of God, who, if he so designs, would see to it that the skeptic was enlightened, or, if not, who would dare to go against the will of God. Leonard did not insist then on carrying on the discussion. He only said gently that, for the time being, there was nothing to be done, that no reasoning could show the way to a man who was determined not to see it, and that Jean Christophe must pray and appeal to grace. Nothing is possible without that. He must desire grace and the will to believe. The will, thought Christophe bitterly. So then God will exist because I will him to exist? So then death will not exist because it pleases me to deny it? Alas, how easy life is to those who have no need to see the truth to those who can see what they wish to see and are forever forging pleasant dreams in which softly to sleep. In such a bed Christophe knew well that he would never sleep. Leonard went on talking. He had fallen back on his favorite subject, the sweets of the contemplative life, and once on this neutral ground he was inexhaustible. In his monotonous voice that shook with the pleasure in him, he told of the joys of the life in God, outside, above the world, far from noise, of which he spoke in a sudden tone of hatred. He detested it almost as much as Christophe, far from violence, far from frivolity, far from the little miseries that one has to suffer every day in the warm, secure nest of faith, from which you can contemplate in peace the wretchedness of a strange and distant world. And as Christophe listened, he perceived the egoism of that faith. Leonard saw that. He hurriedly explained, the contemplative life was not a lazy life. On the contrary, a man is more active in prayer than in action. What would the world be without prayer? You expiate the sins of others. You bear the burden of their misdeeds. You offer up your talents. You intercede between the world and God. Christophe listened in silence with increasing hostility. He was conscious of the hypocrisy of such renunciation in Leonard. He was not unjust enough to assume hypocrisy in all those who believe. He knew well that with a few such abdication of life comes from the impossibility of living, from a bitter despair, an appeal to death, that with still fewer it is an ecstasy of passion. How long does it last? But with the majority of men is it not too often the cold reasoning of souls more busied with their own ease and peace than with the happiness of others, or with truth? And if sincere men are conscious of it, how much they must suffer by such profanation of their ideal! Leonard was quite happy, and now set forth the beauty and harmony of the world, seen from the loftiness of the divine roost, Below all was dark, unjust, sorrowful. Seen from on high, it all became clear, luminous, ordered. The world was like the works of a clock, perfectly ordered. 
Now Christophe only listened absently. He was asking himself, does he believe, or does he believe that he believes? And yet his own faith, his own passionate desire for faith, was not shaken. Not the mediocrity of soul and the poverty of argument of a fool like Leonard could touch that. Night came down over the town. The seat on which they were sitting was in darkness. The stars shone out. A white mist came up from the river. The crickets chirped under the trees in the cemetery. The bells began to ring. First, the highest of them, alone, like a plaintive bird, challenging the sky. Then the second, a third lower, joined in its plaint. At last came the deepest on the fifth, and seemed to answer them. The three voices were merged in each other. At the bottom of the towers there was a buzzing as of a gigantic hive of bees. The air and the boy's heart quivered. Christophe held his breath, and thought how poor was the music of musicians compared with such an ocean of music, with all the sounds of thousands of creatures, the former the free world of sounds compared with the world tamed, catalogued, coldly labeled by human intelligence. He sank and sank into that sonorous and immense world without continents or bounds. And when the great murmuring had died away, when the air had ceased at last to quiver, Christophe woke up. He looked about him, startled. He knew nothing. Around him and in him everything was changed. There was no God. As with faith, so the loss of faith is often equally a flood of grace, a sudden light. Reason counts for nothing. The smallest thing is enough. A word, silence, the sound of bells. A man walks, dreams, expects nothing. Suddenly the world crumbles away. All about him is in ruins. He is alone. He no longer believes. Christophe was terrified and could not understand how it had come about. It was like the flooding of a river in the spring. Leonard's voice was still sounding, more monotonous than the voice of a cricket. Christophe did not hear it. He heard nothing. Night was fully come. Leonard stopped, surprised to find Christophe motionless, uneasy because of the lateness of the hour. He suggested that they should go home. Christophe did not reply. Leonard took his arm. Christophe trembled and looked at Leonard with wild eyes. "'Christophe, we must go home,' said Leonard. "'Go to hell!' cried Christophe furiously. "'Oh, Christophe, what have I done?' asked Leonard tremulously. He was dumbfounded. Christophe came to himself. "'Yes, you are right,' he said more gently. "'I do not know what I am saying. Go to God. Go to God.' He was alone. He was in bitter distress. "'Ah, my God, my God!' he cried, wringing his hands, passionately raising his face to the dark sky. "'Why do I no longer believe? Why can I believe no more? What has happened to me?' The disproportion between the wreck of his faith and the conversation that he had just had with Leonard was too great. It was obvious that the conversation had no more brought it about than that the boisterousness of Amalia's gabble and the pettiness of the people with whom he lived were not the cause of the upheaval which for some days had been taking place in his moral resolutions. 
These were only pretexts. The uneasiness had not come from without. It was within himself. He felt stirring in his heart monstrous and unknown things, and he dared not rely on his thoughts to face the evil. The evil? Was it evil? A languor, an intoxication, a voluptuous agony filled all his being. He was no longer master of himself. In vain he sought to fortify himself with his former stoicism. His whole being crashed down. He had a sudden consciousness of the vast world, burning, wild, a world immeasurable. How it swallows up God! Only for a moment, but the whole balance of his old life was in that moment destroyed. End of section 24